Hello, and welcome to Tabletop Game Talk, On Topic, a show where we talk about tabletop gaming topics of all kinds. I'm one of your hosts, Fletcher. I'm Kitty. And I'm Chris. This week, we're talking about character creation. Is it the best part of role-playing games, or just something you need to get through so you can start rolling dice? Does anyone else have a graveyard of characters that only played in two sessions, but have multiple pages of backstory? But first, a thank you to our Patreon friends of the show, Adam Harrison, Miles Clark, and The Gift of Games in Grace Lake. Also, you can check out their website at thegiftofgames.com. And a huge thank you to all our other patrons as well. I think this is literally the first time you read an intro that I had no idea what it was going to be, because I did not read it ahead of time and I made you write it. <laughs> well, you gave me so much heads up of, you know, 15 whole minutes. Hey, you picked the topic, so you get to I write did. it. You get to write next week's, too, because you picked that topic as well. I believe I already wrote that one. I was on top of that episode. Because <laughs> you told me I was notes. in charge of those show notes. <laughs> Next week, we have a great topic. One that I would not have thought about. So, yeah. I'll, I'm going to let you and Fletcher pick we'll more topics. tease it out to the end. <laughs> yeah. A reminder, we are on Zoom. Um, you can join us by going to tabletopgametalk.com slash live. We do at 8.30 Central every Monday. And remember, daylight savings time happened in the U.S. So if you are someplace else like Australia, um, we are an hour <laughs> later than we normally would be. We hey, really Miles, should have welcome. said that <laughs> last week. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I don't pay attention anymore because my, my phone just updates and all of a sudden yeah. it's like, wait, I feel more rested than normal. Unfortunately, my children did not automatically update. So they were still up at 5 a.m. So I think last week, did I mention that um, Becca started, like, slept through the night? No. She has, so she slept through the night, like, a random time, and then the next night she woke up at, you know, 2, 3 in the morning. And then the next day, and ever since, she sleeps through the night now. She goes down yeah, around 10, 30, 11 o'clock. Four-month sleep regression. Well, I, that's fine. <laughs> at six weeks, when she starts sleeping through the night, I'm like, all right, I'll deal with it at four yeah, months. Yeah, that's what my kid did. It. it was delightful compared to the first one <laughs> yeah and now i'm like, back to getting up once or twice at night which isn't so bad well but i worked very hard to get her to take an entire bottle before bed tonight and i am really fingers crossed <laughs> <laughs> for yeah. no 2 a.m wake up well they are definitely not adjusting to daylight savings they're waking up <laughs> no. early um and we're not helping so i mean the baby Eh, whatever you know she's an hour off it's not that big a deal but zachary got to daycare an hour early today and i picked him up at five because i'm like otherwise he's gonna be there for like 10 hours so i picked mm -hmm. him up an hour early and then we ended up putting him to bed an hour early because that was the normal time i'm like that was an accident i was trying to postpone it a half hour so i could like do some gradually yeah we try to do it by 15 minutes every night but um we got a little off because the bears went into overtime last night and was in charge of bedtime. So he stayed up Priorities. a little bit longer. Yeah. You know, you got to have yeah. him even as a parent. Yeah. Well, so Thursday, um, his daycare calls around 11 o'clock in the morning and says, Hey, um, our teachers are having a couple of our teachers have stomach issues and we want, are going to close down the classroom early. So you need to come and pick him up. So he came and picked him up and then they ended up closing on Friday as well. And Zachary is just throwing up all day long on Friday. Like oh, no. nothing like you give him a sip of water and he would throw it up. So I called daycare to be like, hey, just let you know, whatever it was, it looks like he has it. It's like he's she's like, yeah, five or six of the other kids also are doing the same thing. Oh. Um, they called the pediatrician. They're like, yeah, it's probably like a retrovirus or rhinovirus, I think, like, whatever. Um, 
And she's like, but if it's still going on tomorrow, yeah, if it's still going on tomorrow, bring her in, bring them in and we'll do a curbside check for COVID because it's a symptom in COVID. And I Googled it. I'm like, it's a very rare symptom. The most common is cough and fever. And I'm like, six kids all throwing up without cough and fever. It's not COVID. Um, But he was fine on Saturday and now he's back at daycare now. And Sydney and I are both a little bit today. So whatever he had, we think we got some residual of it. You know, knock on wood, I don't send my kid to take care and we have not had the stomach flu yet. Uh, I am not. He's not like, he's not a stomach kid. And I am thankful for that every day because my sister's kid is one of those kids where like anything with nausea, like that is, he will get it. My kid, not so much. (laughs) Well, with all the COVID um, precautions at daycare, he had a runny nose. He's been back at daycare for, I don't know, five or five months or so. He's had a runny nose for two days and the entire rest of the time, not sick at all, except for yeah. this, which we think this was probably, I don't know who knows where this gets from, but it's, it's like basically food based in some way. Yeah. It's one of those past people to people. Kids get them all the time when they're in group settings. This would go through uh day camp all the time when i worked for day camp and it would just decimate your staff and it was awful (laughs) all right so outside of kids (laughs) we would be remiss if we didn't talk about happy election day so go out and do your civic duty (laughs) yes this is election day in the u.s yes (laughs) um which apparently is a hotly watched thing all around the world like people are sending like different countries are sending like teams to washington to cover this in in live like it's as big a deal in other countries as it is here which makes sense but um yeah so we don't really get political on this podcast because it's a gaming podcast and we're from illinois and in the especially in the presidential election um the three of our votes do not matter in any way shape or form we still cast them we still cast them (laughs) i have already voted um but the There's state- also Senate and judges and stuff like that. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and right. Everything else mm-hmm. except for the presidential election. Um, but yeah, because we voted, we voted, I don't know, last week, early voting, which was just a great idea this year because, I mean, even then, it just spreads things out. So you're not like standing in line as much. But yeah, there Illinois is about a huge 100%. Line for- Early voting by me, we voted by mail, but turned our ballots in to the polling place. And there was a huge line. Huge line. Yeah, it took us about 30 minutes to go through where we were at. Really? I just walked in and dropped it off. Well, I... We actually voted there because Sydney was oh. concerned that her signature wouldn't match because she was like she may have registered under her other name or, you know, it was just we were just concerned about uh, that type yeah. of thing. So we're yeah. like, you you bring your ballot, you turn it in and then they give you a new ballot. So and it was only like a 30 minute wait. So it, was, it wasn't too bad. But um, I do want to highlight for those who are in the U.S., you should know about the Electoral College and how it works and why it works that way. And those who are not in the U.S., you should know about the Electoral College because it's one of the most messed up electoral <laughs> voting crazy. systems in the world. <laughs> so I am going to pimp a podcast called The Daily, which is from the New York Times, the October 22nd episode. Um, they have an expert on the Electoral College on there and basically talks about the reasons for it and all of that. But one of the things I found in- most interesting about it is the intent of the Electoral College is to make sure that the minority keeps having a voice. So even if, you know, Nebraska doesn't have a lot of people, but they're still going to have two electoral votes. Plus, actually, I think it's three because you get your two plus one, whatever. Um, 
But what ended up happening <sighs> is we only care about Pennsylvania this year. Illinois yeah. will gets no visiting, no advertising, no rallies, no nothing. Pennsylvania, that one, like I think both. There's candidates a few have states there, that like, matter. It's Pennsylvania, yeah. Michigan, Wisconsin. Yep, but <sighs> I mean, it's, it's just interesting that those are the states where you see the most activity and the most. I mean, literally pandering. For well, votes. yeah, like New York, California, Illinois, anywhere where you have a big city, they're gonna go blue no matter what. So yeah. no one's going to care at all. Yeah. I would, we were talking before the show started. The only political advertising we see in Illinois is the Democrats asking for money. Like that's, that's almost <laughs> at all least you for see. the national elections. Yeah. 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 For national elections. So, but anyway, um, go vote no matter what happens or what side you're on. This is going to be a very interesting week. Um, so let's talk about board games. <laughs> <laughs> escapism please <laughs> actually we're not talking so much about board games I, i'm gonna pull board games into this a little bit but kitty um i think when you picked this topic you were thinking more role-playing games than board games for sure we're we're bringing you know we're called tabletop game talk not yeah, tabletop. board game <laughs> yeah. talk <laughs> yep. um so we have to do a role-playing you know at least touch on it every once in a while so yeah when i thought about this because I think actually last week that was the conversation we had after the podcast was, oh, we haven't done a role-playing episode in a while. And this was the thing that came to mind was character creation because it is my favorite part of role-playing games <laughs> is coming up with characters. I don't know what it is or why, but love it. <laughs> Fletcher, you are also a big role-player. Your level of enjoyment of making characters versus playing characters. Um, I definitely like playing the character more, but I really enjoy, um, making the character. And I think, I mean, we'll, we'll get into it, but what I enjoy more about making the character is not so much choosing a backstory for the character. I kind of like, you know, have a few ideas, but I don't like flesh it out or anything. I like choosing, uh, you know, the class, the abilities, trying to like min max and come up with like an interesting (laughs) kind of like character that I want to play. So for those who are not as familiar with role-playing games, um, character creation is the act of, I mean, literally creating your character, but it can be one of the most intimidating parts for new players. It is when you need to create a new character, it's like, okay, ready? We're going to play Dungeons and Dragons. Go create your character. Okay, how do I do that? Here's a player's handbook, which is, you know, 400 pages. Just read this. You'll be fine. And even you after need the you first do 50 that, of them, though. <laughs> yeah. Only, unless you're playing a wizard, then there's that other chapter. And also, you oh, have yeah. to learn how to fight. And don't forget. <laughs> okay. Don't all, be a magic caster. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's else. the equipment. <laughs> yeah. So character creation can be intimidating. Um, anytime you pick up a new system, a new role-playing game, the character creation rules are usually the most complicated of all of the game. Not all games are like that. Some character creation systems like Fate says, come up with a name and the three aspects of your character, you're done. And those aspects are, I'm a spy, I'm short, and I come from royalty. Boom. That's your character. So it can be very, very simple, um, but that's a very narrative game. It's not that mechanical crunchy. Where on Dungeons and Dragons, you're saying, pick your class, pick your race, pick your subclass, um, here's his abilities, pick this, where are you going to put your stats, what skills are you going to choose, 
I'm making it sound more complicated than it is. Once you start playing, it actually isn't that complicated, but it feels well, overwhelming at, at the start. In D&D and Pathfinder, other games of the same kind of crunchiness level, I feel like you can make it as complicated or as easy as you want it to be. So players who are really going for, you know, like Fletcher enjoys like min-maxing characters. I want to have like the best abilities. You know, they can go through all of these like, oh, you know, you've got the supplemental materials. You can do all of these like subclasses. There's so much there that you can explore. But if you want to just create a human fighter, it won't take you very long. Yeah, Or just go online and download a pre-made character. Pre-made characters yeah. are the best way to get into a new game because you get a chance to do a dry run on a character and then be like, oh, I liked this and this, but I didn't like that. Well, D&D Beyond, I think, has really made it so much easier for people to get into this because it gives you just a, these are the choices you have on this screen. Make your choices. Now, we'll, because of those choices, we give you the applicable choices next time. And you just follow the screens through and you check the boxes that you like and don't like. And boom, you have a character. And I think being able to have the technology walk you through like that is so helpful. And yeah. It's like TurboTax for character creation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's exactly that. <laughs> and it's an amazing resource. I... Uh, walked my friend through her first character creation. Uh, we played a little one-off d and I don't actually think we ever ended up playing. We just made characters <laughs> kind of to this point. Um, so I walked her through creating her first character through D&D Beyond and trying to like do that over a phone call was simple, like pretty straightforward. I just shared my screen and clicked the boxes for her that she was, you know, like, and explained to her if she had questions. And it took maybe half an hour and that was like to really go through the whole process like it could have taken 10 minutes if i was just kind of like and this is why i'm doing this 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 and this and like didn't give her choices just did it for her um i don't remember where i was going with this but it really <laughs> makes easier, things easy <laughs> yeah with online tools fletcher have you used D beyond yeah sure have. we used yeah, it I... on our on our failed campaign <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah we did didn't we yes yep yeah yep um, One I, of the other characters in my graveyard <laughs> of sadness. <laughs> John mentions he loves D&D Beyond, and I do too. I own all of the D&D books on D&D Beyond and in print. Um, because D&D Beyond is really the only place you can get them digitally for a, a, like official means. Um, which means I buy everything twice, but I don't mind supporting. <laughs> is anyone surprised about that? But the nice thing about it is because I have them, when I share them with my players and say, okay, you guys are, you know, I can share with you. You also have access to all of them as well. Mm -hmm. so, so it's not like um, I'm buying and then you have to buy it and Fletcher has to buy it. It's like, okay, we're going to play Eberron. So all of the Eberron source material I'm, you know, sharing with you. And then you have access to everything and you have access to the books and really anything I want to give you, you have access to, uh, which is really cool. It's a nice way of like sharing. It's the equivalent of sharing a physical book, but you're doing it in a digital way. And it's really nice because it doesn't restrict you. Like if I'm reading it, Kitty, you can read it as well. Exactly. Um, which is I really can't nice. tell you how many times before we had D and D beyond, you know, you just went and bought us all our own player handbook because you were like, I can't <laughs> handle the passing the book around the table anymore. You're all driving me crazy. That was like well, our gift when actually, they first came it was, out. 
It was bribery. So we were playing in a Pathfinder <laughs> campaign because this was between fourth and fifth edition. Which I loved. <laughs> and I was I was DMing Pathfinder and I can't stand that game system. I hate it with a fiery passion. So I wanted to get out of that campaign. So basically yeah, what I did is I hate <laughs> combat maps. No, 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 no. That's not true. That's not true. I played fourth edition for years and that is all combat maps. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, but what I did have a problem with was to DM that game, you had to have basically encyclopedic knowledge of everything that was going on. Every monster involved three different books, at least, and cross-referencing and figuring things out. And I, there's so many options that I can't really keep track of all your characters as you guys are tweaking and customizing <laughs> with software that is more complicated than TurboTax. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that Hero Lab? Here, was the uh, no, that, one. Oh, that was yeah. I think it was Hero Lab. Yeah. <laughs> and and so what I did is I bought you all a fifth edition handbook and said, okay, we don't have to do this, but if you wanted to, we could try the system out right now and see where it goes. And then we all rolled new characters, and I and got outvoted. Never looked back. <laughs> <laughs> it's I loved Reina. <sighs> she is still my favorite character. I think that she's a character I played for the longest for sure. Um, I put so much effort into creating a mounted combat character and never, ever got to fight while mounted. <laughs> um, and it's just like, there's always problems like that with character creation and the setting you're in. And like, this is what I want to do, but it like the game doesn't always let you play the way you want to. And I actually, the podcast I listened to, the guy got around this by playing a halfling who was mounted on a wolf so the wolf could fit through all of the medium-sized things. Because I could never bring my horse in a building and all the combats happen in buildings. So he yeah. just had a wolf and he could ride his wolf in combat through all of these buildings. It was great. I, Sir Willamette, yeah, Sir Will, Willamette Keswick, I think, yeah. was that character's name. I great. honestly think that you... When we left Pathfinder, you didn't put up a fight. I think this glass cannon, is that the podcast? Yep. Yeah. I think that made you retro retroactively see Pathfinder as something no. it's not. Um, I think that I didn't realize how much I would miss it. Like, because you sold it as we're going to be playing the same, but more and easier. But then you started messing with all of these like, oh, well, now we'll just do theater of the mind. We're going to create this new map system. We're going to do this. We're going to do right. that. And you made a lot of changes all at once. And I just miss having no, a map. All I did, all I did was get rid of the map. And I was thinking about this the other day. So we're talking about character creation. We're, we'll talk about just role playing in general. Um, and I, Katie, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attack you on this. I don't mean to attack you. but <laughs> It's fair. Come at me. <laughs> I, was, I was listening to – I was actually listening to the most recent Ludology podcast. And we were talking about improv and gaming. And it occurred to me that if you are good at going with the flow, you don't need the tactical grit. If you need – if you if you need more structure, the grid feels more comfortable because then it 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 means that you don't have to think of interesting things. You just look at the board and be like, oh, I can move three spaces and hit the zombie. 
Instead of saying, I'm going to swing around the chandelier, which I'm now going to just say is there, and kick the zombie in the face and kick his head off and therefore he dies or whatever. It's... I I think it's maybe a learning style thing because I need a visual to remember what is happening. And the problem is you say, there are three zombies in this room. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to walk over and attack the zombie. And then somebody else attacks it and, you know, things happen. And then, you know, two rounds later, oh, that other zombie snuck up behind you and sneak attacks you. Now you're flanked by these two zombies. Oh, I forgot that that zombie existed because I can't see it. I'm a very visual person. I need to have the visual reminder of what's going on. And I think there were many times where I would forget a detail that I wouldn't forget if I could see it. But and that I would forget a- the detail, and so you would murder me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I never murdered you. I've never killed your character. But I... Yeah, because that, you're too you're, nice you, to kill me. You could have killed me so many times, and you should have. Proven, but you've proven <laughs> my point. So you don't need to know everything that goes on. Bad things happening is interesting. And to need to know every... You know, positioning, it was like, well, if I go here and I move there, this zombie's going to be able to sneak up. So instead, I'm going to go over there. You don't have to do that. If the zombie hits you in the back of the head, that's interesting. See, to me, it's a difference between, and this is a problem I have with role playing sometimes. And this, you know, is a me problem. And that is, there's a difference between my knowledge and my character's knowledge. And my character who is a trained fighter, who has a huge perception score, is not going to let the zombie sneak up behind her. If she can see it, she can hear it. She's physically in the space. I can be that character and know where three zombies are. But me, Kitty, I'm bad at (laughs) spatial reasoning in my mind. I Like that one where you have to rotate the shape in your head? Can't do it. Cannot. (laughs) Well... (laughs) <laughs> the the counter to that is that is what your armor class is. And the higher your armor class, the more likely your character is to observe that third zombie and not get hit by it. Because it attacks you but misses. That's your character being aware of it and getting out of the way. But anyway, I just I just thought it was interesting as I was listening to the improv thing because it bad things are interesting, good things are boring. Like things that just work are boring for stories. It's, See it, there, there's two sides to that, no matter what. If things are just working for the players, that means, like, I don't know, they're not working for the monsters. Like, <laughs> but, I, but that's, I, the monsters are only there to make the story interesting. It does, they don't have to work for the monsters. Sometimes players should be, like, you know, destroy everything, they win. Yeah, sure, sure. That, that should happen. But if everything the characters wanted to do, it just worked, that's not a very good game. No, but I don't think you have to not be able to see what's going on for that to be the case. <laughs> I think it. I just like to see what's happening. I like. Kitty wants to, a map. <laughs> I like wants a, a map. map. I, I want a map. Well, well, I will. <laughs> the reason that I stopped using the map, um, in all honesty, is it drastically reduces prep time. It drastically increases play time. Um, in fourth edition, I we played a two year campaign. Where it makes combat every- faster. Yeah. Well, and it makes combat faster. Yeah. It makes everything just more streamlined. And but in fourth edition, it you had to have a map. And for a lot of people, people would complain. And going back to the character creation, when you create your character in fourth edition, you were picking from a suite of powers and abilities that you could do. And on your turn, you had 
abilities you could do all the time, some abilities you could only do once a combat, some abilities you could only do once a day. So you had to pick all of these things, and you would have about three combats a day, because that's what the game needed for it to work. So it was actually relatively easy for me to DM, because all I had to do is, like, have, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes of story, and then I just put a combat encounter on the table, and the next two and a half hours, all we're doing is moving around pieces and hitting things, which is fun. It just doesn't advance the story and it actually stops the story in its tracks it makes it so you are no longer paying attention you are not this cool rogue character who's sneaking up and and stabbing someone you are rolling dice and tactically positioning yourself counting out squares it it takes you puts you in a mechanical mindset versus a role-playing mindset that's the main difference i think between theater of the mind and tactical i like I don't know that I necessarily need a map with a grid with like a this is how many squares my movement is. This is how like if I stand here, I have flanking and I get my sneak attack dice. Like I don't necessarily need that. What I want is like just like even just tiny like like a illustration almost. I just want <laughs> yeah. pieces you want on a the special board. positioning. Yes. Yeah, and it can be, be, like, it doesn't have to be as straightforward as, like, I move, you know, here, here, here. It's just, like, can I get there? You know, it's the same as Theater of the Mind, but I just need, like, a physical reminder of what I'm supposed to be Theater of the Minding. (laughs) Yeah, and there's, and honestly, there's no, I mean, again, I just, I stopped doing it because it was easier to have spontaneous combat versus always like having to set up a map every time we needed to roll initiative, even for like the smallest things. But (laughs) yeah, but there is a hybrid. Like there are Mm -hmm. like, okay, if this battle is not supposed to be any kind of mainstay thing, it's meant for you guys just to walk through and destroy things. There's no reason to put a map out there. It's just going to take up time. But if this is like a, a main event, but I think again, getting back to our subject (laughs) maps versus not maps, when you're creating your character, it matters whether or not you know you're going to be playing with a map. So again, mm-hmm. just for um, describing things, mapped combat is like you have like a one inch grid, you know, a checkerboard for yeah. all intents and purposes. And your character can move six spaces and then swing a sword. And, you know, if you're next to something, you can hit it. Or if you have a range of whatever, you can count out, can I hit that zombie from here, etc. Theater of the mind removes all of that. And I just say, there are three zombies, the room is, you know, about 50 feet across, and 20 feet wide, and there's rubble all over the place. And, you know, you're on one side, the zombies are on the other side, what do you do? And you don't need a map to do that, you just say what you want to do. And the DM's kind of keeping everything, you know, track of everything in their mind, what you're hitting, what you're going, what you're doing. Um, It can be a little bit more chaotic, for sure. But when you're creating your character, If you know that you're going to be on a grid, you can kind of go all in on these, oh, this gives me plus 10 movement. So this is Mm -hmm. going to be something I can use a lot. Where in Theater of the Mind, plus 10 movement doesn't necessarily have nearly the effect. Yeah. No one's going to take haste as their spell if you're not playing on a grid. Right. Well, maybe haste haste is different. Well, I guess it depends on the addition. But you're not going to try to speed up your movement because you know haste usually is used to speed up movement because in most things it gives you one additional action so you're not spending like you can do movement and take your action or all of your actions whatever it is instead of trying to double move at least in pathfinder 
So. Oh, actually, I'm, well, all right. So in, what is this? Is this, yeah, fifth edition, haste. Choose a willing creature that you can see until the spell ends. The target speed is doubled. Gains plus two armor class and has advantage on dexterity saving throws. Gains an additional action on each of his turns. So that action can only be used to take attack, um, dash, disengage, hide. Wow, haste is awesome. I would yeah. definitely take haste. But If you're playing on a map. <laughs> yeah. Well, even not, having that extra I guess for the action. action yeah, yeah. But, there's a lot of cool things there. Um, but... But yeah, I get the idea that when you're creating your character, you want to know what environment that character is going to be acting in. Like I I started saying before, I don't make characters, right? I usually am the DM, so I rarely make characters. And when I do make characters, I want to make characters, I'm drawn to characters that are more um, story-driven, like Diplo-manipulative. But I know that no game I ever am going to play in is the DM going to let me play a character like that that's going to be valuable? So instead, what I end up doing is picking the most combat-efficient monk because they're simple, straightforward, and I don't have to think. Because <laughs> I'm a terrible, terrible player. I hate being a player in a role-playing game. Hate it. I wonder if the- it's because you don't spend time making your character. No, no, no. I've made tons and, and tons always- of characters. Well, do you always go with the same kind of thing, though? I can, I'll make characters all day long, all types of characters. Actually, I make pretty much all of Sydney's characters because she does not like making characters. So every character (laughs) she's ever played, I've made. Um, I like making characters. I like making characters of a lot of different varieties. What I don't like is not being able to use the character, and this goes back to what you're saying, use the character in the way I wanted when I created it visually. So I know if I make a nice combat heavy character, no matter what, it's always going to be useful. Yeah. So I think some of this does come back onto the GM, and that is when you're creating your character in a vacuum, you can pick all of the cool stuff you want, but you might never use it. But if you are creating, especially in like a homebrew campaign, so not some, there's, for people who don't do role-playing games, you can either like play in a world somebody else built something there are some of them that are huge like forgotten realms or galarian for pathfinder where there are these gigantic stories that are told and you can do an adventure path or i don't know what the equivalent is for D D. it's just but adventure like, with no path <laughs> <laughs> um and there are these you know stories that are already written out that you can follow through and be run but um a homebrew is something where the gm is making it up they're making their own content and if you are doing that and you are working with your players you can have such a cool character driven story but you can also especially on these adventure paths or adventures whatever pre-written stuff if you make a, you can make the coolest character in the world that will be absolutely useless Sure. Yep. Yeah. One of the things that I had to institute with at least one of the groups you were in, probably a couple of the groups you were in, um, is no overlapping specialties among my player characters. Because we had a game once where there were a couple, there was a couple characters that were just good at a number of different things. And then a couple characters that were good at one of those things that the other characters were good at too. And what Mm -hmm. happened was the characters that were just good at multiple things they could they were always in the the spotlight yeah well they were just always always in the spotlight and 
you would have players that would sit there and be like, I can't do anything because my specialty is stealth, but this person still has a better stealth than I do, even though they also do this and this. Yeah, well, monks are awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember this exact situation. Yeah. And um, it is really hard. And, you know, when you're coming up with, I don't know, there's kind of two ways to build a character. And there's like, the story-driven character creation and the technical-driven character creation. And I think players who focus on, like, the story-driven can sometimes have their abilities overshadowed by somebody who has completely min-maxed their character. And that can be very frustrating for players. I think you you were trying to minimize this in yeah. the game. Well, I think I did it in the Eberron campaign, right? I basically said, here are five major mechanical specialties so it could be arcana knowledge divine knowledge stealth um you know diplomacy basically just here are these five things that are like key things each of you can have one of them take Mm -hmm. choose the one and none of you can have the same one that someone else has so there's one diplomacy expert there's one arcana expert and in doing that it makes each person in the group have this specialty. Now, you may be able to do other things as well, but you can never do something better than the other person that has that specialty. And That's why I like playing with a smaller group of people. Like, if if you play with a group of, like, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight people, like, there's too many tools in the tool chest. And it's like, well, I'm going to try to use history. I'm going to try to use insight. I'm going to, oh, I happen to speak this language. I can, I can, uh, I can read and write it. Um, I, I always find that it's better when you have like a group of like three or maybe four people. Uh, that way, your toolbox is what much more limited, and you have to be a lot more creative. I think four you have is to the get the the universal yeah. Swedish tool, whatever the Allen wrench is. That what they always give you the hex wrench? I yes. Know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, like in the vampire the game we were tool. playing, you know, we all of our characters basically were the same. Well, like, vampires so different. And um, I think Spencer, um, because a lot of our characters had some overlap, like, I don't know, Spencer was trying to do a thing, and I don't think he articulated it very well to (laughs) people who had never played the system before. So, like, um, me and Doug were more familiar, and I think we kind of got, you know, our characters really fleshed out with Spencer, and then... Um, Spencer was trying to have the other players like start as human and then turn into vampires. And he didn't give a lot of like thought into what kind of vampires. And so like, because he kind of molded our party, he did this to us and we have no muscle was our problem. Yeah. We had I mean, no muscle. <laughs> yeah, Which made for a situation. And this is, again, goes back to character creation and uh, so I don't want to start saying good DM, bad DM, or anything like this, but it, you can it goes back Spencer. to it's cool. He doesn't listen to us. <laughs> well, it goes back to what you were talking about before, where if you're doing homebrew, you need to have that cooperation between the DM and the players. So it is fine to have a group of all clerics, for mm-hmm. for example, if the DM says, "Okay, I'm going to make a story that's interesting for a group of all clerics," it is yeah. fine to have a group with no clerics, no healers at all. If the DM says, okay, I'm going to make a story that's interesting and isn't going to require, you know, a healing, whatever. Yeah. Heal, 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 right? So 
you have you're not to need ad- lesser restoration. <laughs> right. You have to adapt the story so that it's interesting yeah. based on the party composition. Where like, okay, fine, you know, you become blind. Well, if we had a cleric that was our, our level, he could heal me right now. You don't, you're blind because it's interesting and now this is gonna take the story in a specific direction because you need to find someone to, you know, heal your lava burned eyes or whatever the case is. Yep. It, but it's hard to do, and it's especially hard to do when you have pre-written written adventures that expect oh, yeah. a certain party composition. That's, you know, the because I the podcast that I listen to, they play a Pathfinder adventure path. And while I really like the story that they have there, they do sometimes get hemmed into. They have to play certain kind of characters because for a while, they're... They had a cleric at the beginning of their campaign, and their cleric, he didn't die, but spoilers if you listen to it. I won't get into it. Um, <laughs> they have fine. no cleric, and somebody did get blinded, and then somebody else had negative levels. And if they had a cleric, those things wouldn't have been problems. But because they were, they actually had another character death because a character was blind. And if that character, if they'd had a cleric, that never would have happened. And it was more fun going through that because they didn't have the expected tools in some way. But at the same time, if you are playing an adventure path and you know, oh, well, we'll need a cleric, we need a rogue, we, you know, you need these three characters and then a fighter, whatever it is, you have that. It's like playing Pandemic with the, you know, what is it, the medic, the researcher, scientist, and uh, dispatcher. It's like you can always win. Unless something goes terribly, terribly wrong, you know, you know what you're coming up against and you can handle it. And so, so, so I think that takes some of the fun out of character creation is just like when you're following the template to win the game. It, yeah, I was I just going like to say, that. you shouldn't be playing D&D like Pandemic. Pandemic yeah. is a puzzle. D&D is a story. And I think ha- mm-hmm. not having a cleric and having characters that are losing levels and can't get them back and are blind is a far more interesting story than we have exactly the tools we need. So anything the DM does, eh, whatever, we can just counter that. That is not an interesting game. And it makes it, you know, tricky because I think it is fun to, you want to build the best character you can. But I think it's sometimes more fun to come up with a concept first and build the character to your concept instead of I'm going to build the best bard I can be. Um, my D&D Adventures League character is a bard. And I had this like fun story in my head of like she grew up, you know, not being taught how to be an adventurer, but she was given music lessons because she was like more noble. And so, you know, how when she ran away from that life, you know, she had to use the skills that she had and, you know, building the character around that. So much more fun to me than like, oh, well, I want to be able to inspire courage or I don't remember all the spells, whatever it was. Well, so the interesting I want thing, to get this and this and this and this. <laughs> yeah, the interesting thing about Adventurers League and trying to have a deep story for your character is Adventurers League is not set up for that. It's really set up for the mechanical <laughs> aspects of things, um, which is fine. Again, you're building a character specific for what you know you're going into. Um, mm-hmm. John asked a question, though, which I think is interesting. Is having the wrong set of characters the DM's fault or the player's fault? Um, 100% always the DM's fault. Mm-hmm. So unless the players are not listening 
to the DM, which again, why would you play in that group? But if the DM and the DM should never be trying to tell a story, that that is one thing that I, I will say, if you are trying to tell a story as a DM, this is my world, this is my story, I want people to play in my story, you are doing it wrong. Um, you just <laughs> simply are doing it wrong. The story comes out of the interactions between your world that you can set up. It's totally fine to have, this is what's going to happen. These are the events that are happening in my world, and the players are going to engage in them in some way. And you have to be flexible as well to make it still interesting between the two. But if you have a specific thing in mind, so I, I just recently picked up... Don't, um, don't you have like a, a few major beats or something that you... Yeah, mm-hmm. 100%. Yep, 100%. Yeah. So I just picked up um, the Curse of Strahd Revisited or whatever, which is basically just a way for Wizard of the Coast to make more money off of Curse of Strahd. But <laughs> going into that adventure... Oh, Chris. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to tell my group, hey, you are going to be in creepy horror land and eventually you're going to fight a vampire. You should probably build characters that are suited for that environment. If you're going to come in and play a nature magician that only gets powers off of blooming flowers, well, you're not going to actually have fun. (laughs) (laughs) It's just not going to work. But it's my responsibility to say, this character isn't going to work for the world that you're going to be in with this character. It's fine if it if it changes the story a little bit, like, you know, you can come in and we're going to do all five paladins. Okay, that's interesting. I'm going to have to adjust the story Speaking a little of bit. Adventures League. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is something that happens all the time. That's why well, I created a bard, because I was like, what do you never see in Adventures exactly. League? And it's because they so, only have eight hit points at first level and you, like, yeah. die. <laughs> But like, I for, did a lot for, of hiding behind my five paladins. <laughs> yeah. But if I'm going to run a, an adventure, whether it's a pre-written adventure or a homebrew, I'm going to do that. We call it session zero in the biz um, with my players and say, okay, look, these are the things that you guys need to cover. So mm-hmm. work out amongst yourselves how you cover those. And then everything else is fine. We'll find a way of working them in. Maybe. Sometimes things just get forgotten. Um, forgotten. Forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> That time but change. The, exactly. <laughs> but the GM really has to pay attention to that aspect of the group creation. Otherwise, the group is going to fall over. And I've done it. I, I mean, I've made that mistake, letting people like, just make whatever characters you want, and I'll adapt to make things work. Yes, I can adapt a story to make it work, but that doesn't mean that the individual players are going to be having fun, because somebody created a character that just doesn't have anything that's special it's overlapped every place else. So that person is just not going to have a good time. And that needs to be adjusted right away. So something that I, I'm, I'm going to give you a compliment. So get ready. It's all, okay. all, all right. out of your I'm chairs. <laughs> okay. Everyone, something that I think, everyone's still recording, right? <laughs> <laughs> something that I think you do really well as a GM is you encourage players. So like after we've created the technical character you encourage us to create our own backstories and to send them to you that the other characters don't know and i think you've done a really good job of weaving those into campaigns even campaigns that had a more definitive path and something i remember from our savage worlds slipstream game was i had created this um, backstory of not knowing who my mother was. And at some point, we were on a completely unrelated mission and we 
found my mother imprisoned at this place. I had no idea this was going to happen. And it unlocked a, you know, we were supposed to like level up and it unlocked a new ability in me. And you had a uh, character sheet with new special abilities ready to go for me that you handed me halfway through the session. And that was so much fun. And it's something I still remember, like, you know, seven years later or whatever it is. <laughs> well, and those types of things aren't even that difficult to do, especially for the Savage World one, because in that one, I'm like, I want to get a backstory from all of you. And what I did there was kind of play the TV episodal thing, where each mm-hmm. session was going to be focused on one character. So something was going to happen. And eventually you guys picked up. It's like, oh, it's Sydney's turn tonight because yeah. I've got him, you've got him, you've got him. We're going to um, the bird world. <laughs> exactly. But each session allowed you to flesh out that character. And since I think we had five or six players, so we could play, it's like, you know, everyone had a session. And then again, everyone had sessions. And it wasn't like a, a strict rotation. It was just, it allowed for me to focus on one character in a session. Everyone's invested in that character's backstory as well. It's not like, oh, it's not my turn, so everything's boring. But it actually just, it is an easy way of tying things in. And that was a completely improv campaign. Like, it was, Mm -hmm. most of my campaigns are improv campaigns. Um, And I like doing that because it gives me something to work with if there's, if you give me something to work with. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they hit, sometimes they don't. That's fine. Um, my worst DM sessions are the ones that where I'm working from a module. That's why I think our um, Eberron campaign didn't really go as well as I wanted is because I'm like, I'm trying to follow the script here. And the script's just not as much fun as I want to make it. We got into some trouble because we um, befriended the bad guy. <laughs> the yeah. whole I mean, we, were off... we, we couldn't be yeah, we counted were... on to hate the right people. <laughs> yeah. It was a 12 session campaign. And by the third session, you guys were like friends with the bad guys. <laughs> so I was like, all right, let's just go that direction, which is way more interesting to me than, you know, it just, uh, yeah. Fletcher, we've been cutting you off. I know role-playing <laughs> is, your, is your big thing. What do you think about some of these things? Um, so I, I guess like getting back to like character creation, I, I don't know how other people do it, but for me, I kind of, ch- I'm kind of like, what mood am I in? Do I want to, do I mm-hmm. want to be a barbarian? Do I, you know, do I want to be a, like a melee fighter? Do I want to be, you know, what what kind of character do I want to play? Um, and, and then I choose that. And then I, I kind of like, you know, I'll do the min-max thing, but I also kind of – I like choosing, like, a very narrow niche for my character because it's it, – I think it creates a more interesting character that way instead of um, choosing a, a bunch of different, like, broad things that don't necessarily relate. You just – you know, they're just available to you. It's like, oh, if my character is a spellcaster and, um, I don't know, like – necromancy seems kind of interesting so like what kind of things would a necromancer like know like maybe some history maybe they know like abyssal language or something like that like everything yeah. kind of, i want everything to kind of like relate and like make sense for that character and then essentially when the character creation is done that's when that's when i'm like okay let me come up with like a very quick kind of like backstory based on the languages that this you know the character speaks based on what they do what their classes based on you know gender and race um i'll kind of like fill in a backstory based on that as opposed to i don't know maybe coming up with a story and then filling that out so it's kind of done piecemeal to me and then i work backward and i usually don't flesh out like a really long backstory just just like some 
like maybe like two or three sentences. And then as events happen, that kind of like makes sense to the character. It, I, I might get ideas and it's like, oh, okay. Like now this is a piece of like this character's history. Um, yeah. But I, I have to, to like, remind myself sometimes to like leave holes to build more story because you can get caught up. I think if you really enjoy just making a character if you know everything about that character, it's much harder to fit them into the rest of the party in the world. They might not, like, it's creating a piece before you know what the puzzle looks like. If you so I- leave holes in your character, you have the chance for growth to fit into the world to feel organic in the story that's being told. So I have probably a rhetorical question, but if you don't, so if I say generic fantasy, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, you know, we're generic fantasy, you're going to slay the dragon, you know, save the kingdom type of thing. You can pretty much go any direction you want, any backstory you want. When I do something like Eberron, which is a very specific type of world, if you're not familiar with the world, creating a backstory is actually fairly difficult, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in, in that situation, are you more apt to just say, I don't have a backstory because I don't know this world? Or are you, are you like reading all the material to try to like engage and figure out what's going on in there. I read all the material. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I did not read all the material. Um, I kind of came up with something on the spot and I, I basically peppered you with questions about the world that would like make sense for my character uh, when we did like that Eberron campaign. Um, and I was like, okay, this, this will kind of work. I think, I don't think I'm really like breaking anything. And you know, it's like, if I make something up that doesn't actually work, then it's like, oh, well, then never mind. My character doesn't actually, you know, have that backstory. I can come up with something else. <laughs> yeah. So, so one thing I've done before, so we talked about the mechanical. Here's the five mechanical things that each of you should pick one. I've also done, here is a one paragraph backstory for you. And you don't get to pick the one you want. I will write a one paragraph backstory for each person that I know, because I, I know my group for the most part, um, that I think they would find interesting. And that allows them a jumping off point to build from. And it also allows me a story that I can build around. Now, I've done this at camp or on at conventions, like one shots, where here's your character, here's your backstory, you know, simple backstory. And that gives you a way of getting into that character very quickly. I don't know, Kitty, I don't know if I've ever done that in a campaign that we've been playing in. But nope. it feels like if I'm going to go into a new world, like Eberron saying, okay, um, Kitty, you are a halfling from this tribal land and you just got to Sharn and you're kind of unaware of what's going on. Build your character around that with that in mind. Does that give you inspiration and also, obviously, I mean, I don't, I would not give you that backstory because I do not think you would be good with that backstory, but Fletcher might be. <laughs> um, it, it, that would definitely give me enough to go on. I don't know if I would want to do like a three year campaign that started that way because you, I think you have to really like your character to keep wanting to play them like i can play a few sessions with any character you can have me a pre-gen character and you know i have a problem and it will have a backstory by the time we're done with three sessions because i can't not <laughs> do it i might kill that character oh no oh, I, yeah. I need to roll another character darn oh no my character accidentally walked into the lava 
It um, happens. <laughs> no, but, you know, I can do, you know, if I'm just playing for a little bit, I can do whatever. It's fun. It's fun to try to put yourself in different places. And you might enjoy it. You never know until you try doing something. And well, I, it's really funny because I was actually really intimidated before I started playing tabletop role-playing games because I thought playing a character was hard, that you had to do yeah. acting. And I... It's taken, like, it's funny now that part of the fun of it for me is making the character when that was what was so intimidating to me before I sat down to do it. Yeah. Actually, when I was thinking, I just, for some reason, I brought to, I, I don't remember all the different roles, but in the Eberron campaign, I did do something similar. I said, one of you needs to be a Warforge. One of you needs to be from this mm-hmm. area. One of you needs to be that, which is... As, I think there as, were backgrounds. You gave yeah. five different backgrounds and five different like special like mechanical remember. specialties. Yeah, and yeah. we each kind of took turns picking one, and we, you know, we, so we had two kind of things that we yeah based our characters and, off of, and that allows you to come up with the greater story, but it also allows mm-hmm. me to have you tied into the world. So uh, yeah. Miles asked a question: Does the story improve if the characters can't use all their abilities? Um, out of the character, you know, basically being out of the character's comfort zone. Um, so I have my take on this from a GM side. Sometimes I want to take away your ability to do things, especially for magic users, because I can't take your weapon away and have you not be able to still cast a spell. And it's so easy to cast spells, even if you have, you know, there's supposed to be components and things like that. And you can take those away, but they're still spells you can cast just by uttering a word. So I have to bind your hands, gag you, and take away your wand. And finally, I can throw you in a sack and you might not be able to cast spells. Maybe, unless you took a feat that allows you to. Um, so it's, it's <laughs> you have to use the, well, this is an anti-magic caller concept. With a warrior or something like that, I can take away your armors and weapons. And yes, you can punch things, but you're not going to be nearly as effective. This is an interesting story beat that I find interesting to put the characters outside of their comfort zones. But maybe, Kitty, I've just been playing with you too long. You seem to hate when your character can't do what you want it to do. And it's not just you. A lot of people are like, wait a minute, how am I supposed (laughs) to be able to... Like, you just stopped me from being able to do anything, so I can't do anything. What do you guys... What is your take on that kind of, like, story uh, hook uh, trope? Uh... Are you talking to me or Kitty? Well, let's start with you, <laughs> Fletcher, since we've been talking a lot. <laughs> since, since, since I spoke first. Um, uh, I'm honestly okay with it because, like I said, I usually try to pick very narrow characters anyway. So, like, the example that I gave earlier, like, oh, like, if I'm creating a necromancer, like, I'll, special, I'll, I'll do the specialization in necromancy spells. And then, like, I'll pretty much only pick um, necromancy spells. So, it doesn't really give me, like, a, a wide birth of like spells to cast to begin with so um a lot of times i'll, I'll feel myself kind of like um pigeonholed and it's like yeah none of my spells really work in this situation so i'm just gonna use my sling or i'm just gonna have to stab at something with my dagger or like run away or something or something like that <laughs> but like if something does work well it's like oh great this is this is my time to shine um so i guess in that situation yeah i'd just be like i don't know whatever i'm okay with it so what really frustrates me is if I feel like I was kind of cornered into building a sort of one-dimensional character, and then that dimension is cut off. 
um, that is extremely frustrating to me. Something where uh, this happens a lot early in campaigns because you, when you have a lower level character, you just don't have as many abilities. And if you get into a situation where you literally can't do anything, that feels very frustrating. But I think the more you are in tune with your character as a person, you should always feel like you have something to do, even if it doesn't make sense necessarily mechanically in the game. And I think that's something that I'm not always the best at, is separating the mechanics from the character in the gameplay. If your mechanics I, are turned off, your character's turned off. Yeah. And I I think the the more role-playing I do, and the more especially I've played in different systems, something like D&D Pathfinder, when you first get into it, to be fair, the e- they're easy to play as players because your abilities are your character to a certain extent. So it's very easy to know what to do in a situation because you look at your character sheet. What do I have? These are my things I can do. And so you don't have to be as creative. But the more you play, the more creative you learn how to be. And you, instead of looking at your sheet and thinking of what to do, you think of what to do and then figure out how to do it with your sheet. And so, I think that that's a, a mindset thing that I'm not always the best at. So back, so the Dark Sun campaign, this was, oh God, seven, eight, nine years ago. This was <laughs> the campaign that Spencer was playing and that you were still not playing. I was not playing, playing yeah. games. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, about a year and a half into this two-year It was over seven campaign, years because I wasn't married. <laughs> yeah. But a year and a half into this two-year-long campaign, um, I had the big bad kind of like they knew this person, this dragon existed the entire time, right? Mm-hmm. And I had this this dragon come and essentially confront them at one of the cities they were in. And this was supposed to be a fight where they were able to drive the dragon off, but they weren't going to be able to kill him. Mm-hmm. And instead, they just surrendered. They're like, oh, we can't beat this guy. We surrender. And I'm like, oh, okay. Now, this is a year <laughs> and a half of building up like how terrible this dragon is. So the dragon took them prisoner, took all their stuff away, took their magic, their ability to use magic away because they took other focuses and stuff um, away and tied them up in a tower. And we role-played the session where it took them six months to find a way of breaking out of this tower because none of their abilities worked. None of their anything worked. And I had no idea, like, like okay, well, I have to capture you. And so they're suddenly chained in this tower. How and is I, this I going to work? Yeah, <laughs> I, I had no idea how they were going to get out of this. I'm like, maybe this is the end of the campaign. I don't know. But and then it, they die. <laughs> and, and this was and this was fourth edition. So when you get lose your mechanical aspects in fourth edition, like <laughs> you don't even have a character anymore. <laughs> but we had a, such a great story going mm-hmm. that they were able to role play out of that situation. And basically, what ended up happening is there were slaves running around in the tower and stuff, and they befriended them. And slowly, one of them was slowly working out the chains and things like this. And it just took a very long time. And then it became an escape from this prison was the next session. You know, now they finally got loose after six months, they got out. And then they were looking for revenge and got more powerful and went back and got the revenge. That says that would have never happened if the characters weren't comfortable enough or the players weren't comfortable enough to just say, nope, we surrender. Which is not yeah. something I think that if you're mechanically driven, you ever think about. 
But I do think that it matters that it was, what did you say, a year and a half into the campaign? A year and a half in the campaign. And John John wants me to clarify, it was six game months, not, it was one session that covered six <laughs> game months. <laughs> six months of you working on that chain. But So I, I do think that, and you know, I know you as a GM, so you hadn't killed any of their characters. These were, you know, people that they had been playing for a year and a half. They, you know, if this had happened two weeks into a campaign, I mean, number one, story-wise, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But also, it's a lot harder to, like, I think you just get to know a character over time. As you play in a campaign, you become closer to the characters in that campaign and you know your companions in the campaign and so you know their strengths and weaknesses as characters not just as well you're the stealthy character you're the fighter character you're our spellcaster you know you because each one of those character types can have different personalities and different aspects to the character instead of just like you know you could have a big beefy guy who is the caster and like you can have uh i always loved the um bowling ball halfling that's wearing heavy (laughs) armor and just like you know runs into any situation the tank that's a halfling (laughs) you know it it may not make the most sense mechanically but they're fun (laughs) characters to play yeah honestly i think it's one of the the weakest things of pathfinder um, is there are so many options and there's so much min-maxing going on that you don't see your character. You only see the stats. Um, I know on your podcast, they're not playing that way. They are playing characters and the stats are in the background. But when you have so much min-maxing, that was a problem I, with our Pathfinder. There's still a lot of stats. Yeah. I, I but, mean, and I really like, but I can tell that they're working hard to make the characters matter that it is not something inherent to the game. Yeah. And I'm really interested. I want you to check out Pathfinder 2nd Edition because I'm curious to see what your opinions are on it. Yeah, I've looked at it. It's It doesn't fix the things that I think have issues (laughs) with Pathfinder. There's a few things they do that are interesting, but it doesn't fix the things that... It it still has a lot of problems. Um, Two things, though. Um, Maybe two things. Oh, I was going to bring something up. Oh, so Pathfinder. Yeah, I already did some Pathfinder again. That's fine. Um, <laughs> I like the character stuff. But I think it's only fitting that we end character creation with John's last question, which mm-hmm. is how do we feel about character death? I, as a GM, as Katie has mentioned multiple times, tend not to kill characters for... If you can help it. If I can help it. So, I, I mean, the reason I'm married to Sydney is because I killed her character. Um for those who have not listened to that <laughs> that story, um, Sydney and I met at a board game party. Um, I invited her to play in an Adventurers League game at a local game store I was running a game at. I think I created a character for her. I was like, no, no, don't worry. I'll create a character for you. And she <laughs> somehow got eaten by alligators. Um, she then texted me a little bit later and asked me to meet with her on a Saturday night to help her create a new character. I went to the bar with all my D&D books found a nice quiet table <laughs> and apparently that was a date and yeah so now we have two kids but so every once in a while i do kill characters sometimes it happens um oftentimes in adventure leagues i did i do I was because say, i roll much more often in adventure league yeah because i roll in the open everything i do i do in the open there's no hidden dice i don't fudge dice i roll and what you see is what you get i adjust 
whether or not something is more or less um, fatal by the actions that the NPCs take, not by changing the results of dice. Because as soon as you start doing that, you might as well not roll the dice. Mm -hmm. So I roll out in the open so everyone can see, oh, man, you just rolled a crit. And it's everyone sees that. It's like, ah. And I have done a couple times. I critted on a crit and killed a second-level character. I killed killed a six-year-old's character once. And... (laughs) I, and I'm like, all right. Ruthless. So he's 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 rolling death saves, and I look at him. I'm like, okay, you realize this is your third save. If you roll less than a ten, your character is going to die. Are you okay with that? And he looks at me. He's like, yes. And he rolls the die, and it comes up a six, and he just starts bawling. And I'm just like, and this is in the game store, Adventures League, and so this was shortly after the Revenant had come out, which is kind of like an undead player race. And I'm like, okay. This is what happens because you're in this haunted temple. You don't really die. You've just become this like zombie character. And all of a sudden he went from crying to like eyes all bright. And his brother was the one that helped him make characters. So I'm like, all right, so you and your brother go home and make a new character with this and come back. So we ended up playing like an undead race for the rest of that campaign. <sighs> I don't like killing characters. I really don't um, because people do get invested in them. But if I completely remove the risk of killing characters, if you know it's never going to happen, then that can become boring as well. So if I put you in a situation where, yes, you could die, that's okay. But if you do die, I'm going to attempt to make it something that is memorable and heroic versus, oh, well, you just took a lot of damage because I threw this huge unfair monster against you and you really had no chance in the first place. I just wanted mm-hmm. to be a satisfying death versus a random death, except for Adventures League, where you know death is two hundred gold pieces and you're fine, so it's all good. What do you guys think about character death, though? I have very mixed feelings about character death. I like it when other people's characters die. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I think death has to be on the table, otherwise it doesn't matter. Like, why bother playing if you can't die? And I saying that I know though that I would be so mad when my character dies, but I think that that's why it has to happen. I don't know. Like sometimes <laughs> so you can flip the table and say, I've never played this game again. <laughs> I don't think I would flip the table and say, I'm never playing this a game again. Um, and you know, I think that's your character dies. You're not allowed to play anymore for the rest of the session. <laughs> you have to calm down at least long enough to make a new character before you can play. So you just you walk away. <laughs> so um, I don't know. I I do think that if you can't die, the game loses something. But at the same time, I don't want to die. But you know, that's life. It's the game. <laughs> it's, I don't know. So, so yeah, I, I feel complicated about it. <laughs> All right, so you want Fletcher's character to die, not yours. Fletcher, how do you feel about Kitty's character? Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, I don't like it when my character dies. I've only actually had one character die, and this is a D&D game I played in high school. Um, and it was really sad. Like, uh, the character, it wasn't, like, I was far enough in and I was high enough level that, like, you know, I felt like You're I was invested. doing really well with my yeah, I was invested in my character, and I, I kind of created this kind of like weird rogue character on a whim. It was kind of funny, but it turned out to be like 
due to some like lucky chance rolls for like armors and weapons that I got, plus I was just happened to be rolling really well for like all my sneak attack stuff. Like this little halfling rogue was just obliterating like everyone. It was it was actually kind of <laughs> epic um, until finally like he got obliterated. Um, and but the whole time I was playing this character, I was like, this character is awesome. I'm having a lot of fun, and then he dies, and then I'm like, I'm really sad because at that time I think I'm like level. I don't know, level seven or something like that. And I'm like, oh man, like, what am I going to do? Like, what's, what's going to happen? And, you know, I had to basically come up with a whole other character that, you know, I wanted to play. And it, and it wasn't as satisfying playing like the new character. Um, but yeah, it just kind of. And this is, it, this it, is it, why I don't, yeah, this is why I don't kill characters. There are other <laughs> things you can do that I find interesting. So, you know, killing a half, killing your halfling, for example, it, if that started, Somehow he would have to die in an interesting way where he could be brought back and you were temporarily playing another character to try to, you know, get the materials necessary to cast the resurrection spell to bring him back from whatever thing. Like that I find interesting, but just killing a character that you spent a year playing, that I don't find interesting. See, I think that if you think of it like a bigger story, if you're playing as a big campaign then character death can lead to much more interesting stories you can bring in new people bring in new aspects of the world bring more to the table literally you're bringing new characters are bringing more to the table and i think that that makes it meaningful but if you're playing something where the characters are the story if you're playing something more like adventures league's modules where story to story the thread connecting is the characters then yeah killing the characters ruins the story yeah there is one exception. and it all depends on what your lens is yeah there is one major exemption and that's if play so we had a player in um a couple of our campaigns and he just got bored with characters so (laughs) he wanted his characters to die so he could build new characters and in that thing that's kind of a tool that i get to use to be like okay you're giving me permission to kill your character. It's going to happen. It's going to happen for a story-based reason. But it's and it's not something I'm going to discuss with the rest of the group. So if I'm going to kill off a character, it's not going to be like the entire group is like, okay, Rob's character is going to die. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Rob and I know his character is going to die. But the rest of the group doesn't. And that be- creates an interesting situation where he's ready for his character to die. The rest of the group has the shock factor still. And that type of thing is interesting to me. So my last thing on character death, my the reason I hate Dungeons and Dragons or hated Dungeons and Dragons so much, the first time I played Dungeons and Dragons, this was Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. I rolled up a thief. I had four hit points because it was Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. I went to the <laughs> hobby store into the basement. I was with a friend of mine. This was in middle school. And the DM, I'm the thief, right? So I'm like, oh, I'm a thief. This is cool. I, I'm going to go and I'm going to find all the traps and I'm going to go first and I'm the scout and all this is great. Never played D&D before ever. Walk into the first room and there's like a compartment or something. And I reach in and the DM's like, okay, guillotine slides down, rolls damage. Uh, You take six points of damage. I only have four hit points. Okay, you're dead. It took about, I don't know, it was eight minutes of gameplay. And I sat there and watched everyone play for four hours. I've never, I didn't go back to D&D until fourth edition when they basically made characters unkillable. And I'm like, okay, they fixed the things I hate about D&D, which is (laughs) D&D. Um, fifth edition does a nice happy medium and also being the DM, I don't have to worry about characters dying. So I think 
it, it, and that is a bad DM. That is a, mm-hmm. but back then all the DMs were bad. This was like the eighties. <laughs> all, all DMs were bad. Um, but really what you want to do as a DM is you don't want to kill a new player's, player's character ever. It's just, that's just not something you do. You want them to get the killing blow. Give your monsters a couple extra hit points so that that person can feel awesome by taking out the monster. I've had monsters have infinite hit points until one person actually rolls a hit on it and then it <laughs> dies. Because that person, <laughs> that person's character just wasn't doing anything in that combat. It was boring for them. And I'm like, well, we're going to make it so that you are here for a reason. There's some things you should do, especially when you're dealing with new players. And reading the table and making sure everyone's having a good time is key to that. And people build characters. They put their heart into these things and it should be fun it's they're not just there to uh, i don't know it's not just hit point bags i don't think you should ever kill a character at like session one and you know like no that but i don't think you should be like you know fudging how the monsters should act or whatever it is i just think you shouldn't be up against anything that can kill you (laughs) well that's there are going to be weird situations but like if they're if you're playing with a group of level one players and there is a trap that can do six points of damage you have a four hit point character that's a really bad trap to have there and like I, you know, like you shouldn't have traps that can one shot kill a character in a first session adventure. That's just stupid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I agree. And also, as far as monster behavior, I think all monsters by default behave incorrectly in D&D. The fact that monsters fight to the death, no matter how many of them are there, is just a <laughs> ridiculous concept. So I have no problem saying, all right, there's five kobolds. You kill three of them. The other two run away. They run away. You're going to yeah. eventually kill them anyway. Let's just call this because it doesn't mm-hmm. make sense. Why? Are, what are they fighting for? What are they so passionate about that they're willing to risk their life after <laughs> yeah, over half a there's one kobold. <laughs> yeah. Against like three adventurers. And it's like, no, I'm, I can do this. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So we've got really long, but I thought this was a pretty <laughs> conversation. So... <laughs> And we never actually got to board games. We just talked. <laughs> nope. Well, I'll talk. Like, I think one of the reasons we see dungeon crawls and stuff um, such a are such a popular thing is it's hard to find a DM. But you want to create mm-hmm. characters and you want to test these characters. So, you know, Gloomhaven is a great game to check out. You get to create these characters, play interesting characters. Um, if you want something that's a little bit more in depth, something like Arkham Horror, the card game, like you're building, it's a deck of cards, but you're building that character from this deck of cards and you're going through these storylines. Role player, like it's literally a game about building characters. And five years after it was released, Role Player Adventures is going to come out, which is literally a game going through an adventure with the characters that you rolled up in Role Player. So these things, uh, Character creation came from role-playing games, sure, um, I guess, I, for the most part. <laughs> um, but it's fun. It's fun to take these characters that you get attached to. I think that's why Gloomhaven's so popular is you get attached to these characters. And when they retire, you feel it. You feel like, I spent so much time with this character, and now he's gone. But now I have this new character and a new <laughs> destiny that can happen. So... These that's these why things... character death is fun. That's why you should kill characters every once in a while. Every once in a while. New yep. characters are fun. <laughs> Sometimes. Yep. So and if you do end up killing characters, bring the new character in in an interesting way that makes them mm-hmm. like fun from the beginning. It's not just a all right, Joe two just walked in. 
you know, have a <laughs> Although reason. Although I do love <laughs> when you're talking about killing the six-year-old's character. I don't remember where this story comes from. I don't know. I know I read it somewhere or someone told me, but it's the um, somebody spent all this time with their character creation. Their first role kills them. And they just write junior at the end of their name <laughs> yeah. on their character sheet and say, I'm here to avenge my father and pick right back up. This was the Gygax <laughs> way of making characters back in the day is you just create create the same character over and over and you just give, you know, two, three, four, five, six, you know. So, yeah. All right. Well, Kitty, this is a great topic. Um, for that, I shall give you the outro. <laughs> Tabletop Game Talk is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. If you'd like to follow us on social media, the links for Facebook and Twitter are in our show notes. Want to watch us record live? You can find a link for that in our show notes as well. Comments or questions? Email us at feedback at tabletopgametalk.com. Hosting fees and giveaways are sponsored by our patrons. If you'd like to be one of these wonderful people, you can find out how by visiting our website, tabletopgametalk.com, and clicking the support us link. And there's a link in the show notes too. Finally, a huge thank you to our current patrons, Adam Harrison, Miles Bandit-Clark, The Gift of Games, Jason Strong, Joe <laughs> Lewis, Joe Hoover, Jeremy Fisher, Terrence Miltner, Sean Peck, Christopher Dong, Jennifer Engelbrecht, Brian Arnold, Michael Yanikowski, David Sellers, David Radke, Jason Marks, Ann Reynolds, Christopher Letgo, Stephen Judd, Leanne Verholst, Joe Rackstad, Sahara Wentworth, Weatherman Keefe, Paul Raymer, Jimothy, Ben Gary, Matthew Droke, David Rank, Christopher Comstock, Jerry Wong, C. Marie, Justin Willard, Jason Rodney, Cindy Lum, Eric Hoffman, Adrian Dong, Faz Lintham, Eric Salander, Glenn Cotter, Sean P. Kelly, Mike Smith, Caleb O'Brien, Don Gilstrap, Aaron Moore, Ron Nelson, Agnes Toth, Charles Pearson, Jesse Wheeler, and Ronald Roy. And thanks to all of our past and future patrons. Uh, until next week, keep playing games and having fun. So, Kitty, did you see this email about my vertigo? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth sent us an email um, describing that I have proximal post-emission nerval vertigo. <laughs> oh, wait. I forgot about the benign part. <laughs> <laughs> what? You're almost as good at reading as you are at typing. <laughs> so, last week I talked about how when I lay down, I get dizzy, like this dizzy spell, and I thought I was going to get from the... Uh, the oculus quest it has passed since then yeah but um elizabeth wrote it and said you're not dying it's fine it'll pass so elizabeth thank you and (laughs) it's not a tumor (laughs) it's not a tumor she she specifically said it's not a tumor (laughs) not a tumor